So when I asked you to think about what the spirit of Christmas is, what pops into your mind? Now, I didn't ask about the meaning of Christmas. What I'm interested in looking at today is the spirit of Christmas. I want us to explore what is that quality, what is that, that thing that captures and embodies the Christmas season more than any other. Now, we know the world's conception of the spirit of Christmas is all about me, right? How much can I get? How much can I benefit? And thankfully, we're not in the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. And in this room, if I would go and speak to you face to face and ask you, what do you say the spirit of Christmas is? You might say things like, well, worship is the spirit of Christmas. Or maybe fellowship with friends and family is the spirit of Christmas. Many of you would probably say that giving is the spirit of Christmas. And all of those answers, they're, they're fine answers, but I would like to suggest today that they don't go far enough in capturing what the true spirit of Christmas is. And unfortunately, many of us are missing out on what the true spirit of Christmas is. We know the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is the birth of Christ. But that's not necessarily the spirit of Christmas, and that's what we're driving to. So as we begin this Christmas season, and we're looking at the birth of Christ, today I'm not going to be looking at any of the gospel passages where we hear about the birth of Jesus. Instead, I want us to turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to learn about the true spirit of Christmas. As you turn to Philippians 2, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you so much for your son. I thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that he would be magnified through me this, this day, Lord, that you would speak through me, that my words would be yours, and that you would speak to all of our hearts, that we would hear your truth and be prepared to receive that. I ask that in Jesus' name. Now today, we're going to be looking at this passage in Philippians chapter 2 through the lens of the Christmas season. And as we do that, we begin by looking at the incarnation of the spirit of Christmas. We start with the incarnation of the spirit of Christmas, and we're going to pick it up in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Now, if you're anything like me, you've read this passage before, but you never really equated it to Christmas. But Paul is talking about the birth of Christ. He's talking about God becoming man here on earth. That's Christmas. 
So this whole passage is about Paul teaching us the spirit of Christmas. And it begins by Paul saying that we need, all of us, to need to get our minds, our attitudes, all of those things on the example of Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves. And then he talks about Jesus. So this passage is certainly very deep theologically, but Paul wrote it primarily for us to be motivated to live and to think like Jesus did. Now Paul begins by reminding us, first and foremost, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And he is fully God. Paul writes, though he was in the form of God. The Greek word there for form actually means the complete and full essence and nature of something. It is everything that God is, that is Jesus. Jesus Christ was and is fully and completely God. Remember back in the summer when we studied the different names of God and we learned about how holy he was and all those different attributes of God? Well, Jesus Christ is all of those same things. He is fully divine and holy and has every right and authority to be worshipped alongside God the Father and God the Spirit. And yet, Paul writes in verses 6 and 7 that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Do we hear, the, do we hear Christmas coming out of that passage? Do we see that? In the Greek, the fact that Jesus didn't count his equality with God a thing to be grasped means that he didn't hold on to the divine rights he has as God. The Greek word for grasp means to cling to, to hold to. Instead, Jesus was willing to release those rights. He was willing to let it go, right? And now that you have that song in your head, you can thank me later for that, but he, he was willing to let go of his divine privileges and not cling to them. In fact, the verse tells us that not only did he let them go, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Some people will say, well, Jesus wasn't God. He emptied himself of his divinity. That's false. That's a heresy. He was fully God. What it does mean is that he put aside his divinity and the, the rights, he put aside the rights of his divinity. He put aside the privilege of being worshipped as God, of being everything that he was when he was in heaven with God the Father and God the Son. He emptied himself of all of these things so that he could become a man and fully experience what it means to be fallible and weak and human. And we see the word form there again. It's the same Greek word as, the, as before, took on the form of a servant. 
meaning that Jesus took on the very essence and nature, the complete essence and nature of what it means to be man. And not just any man, but a lowly human being. So we see the infinite became finite. The the creator took on the form of the created. The king of kings made himself to be a lowly servant. Jesus is, is fully God. He has the form of God, and he is fully man, the form of a servant, the form of a man. I'm I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to understand how that all works. It's a mystery that we know to be true because the Bible tells us it's true. Amen? But we don't necessarily have it all figured out. That's okay. We have faith. We have faith that the word of God is true. So Jesus is fully God and fully man, but he's, he's not just any man, he's a servant, a man of the lowest stature and position. In fact, everything about the birth of Jesus Christ highlighted how lowly he was. I mean, he was born to two lowly Galilean peasants, People who were looked at in Israel as poor and uneducated backwater hicks. That's who the Galileans were. And and not just any backwater hicks, but hicks who the people thought were engaging in sexually immoral conduct because she got pregnant before they were married. These were his parents. This was Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mom and, and stepdad. Of course, because there was no room at the inn when they went to give birth to Christ, Jesus was most likely born in a cave that was used as an animal pen. And think about that. Can can you imagine just the smell of the place? You ever gone through a farm before? I mean, ladies, ladies, how would you like to give birth in a sloppy, smelly barnyard stall? You ever think about that? Sounds pretty appealing, right? Hmm. Not at all. That's where Jesus was born. And then after he was born, he was wrapped up and laid in a feeding trough. Hardly the throne of a king. And the first people who were told about his birth and who came to visit him, remember from last week? They were shepherds, the people who were at the lowest rungs of society. And he was born in Bethlehem, a podunk little town in the middle of nowhere, completely removed from high society. These are all the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, and they point to his low stature. But you you want to hear about Jesus himself? You want to know what Jesus Christ himself was like? Listen to the prophet Isaiah, what the prophet Isaiah had to say about Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And this is the king of kings. This is is God This is Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah, prophesying about Jesus Christ. Jesus had no beauty. He wasn't anything to look at. He wasn't going to be on any GQ covers, all right? (laughs) And he wasn't going to be on any bodybuilding magazines either. He had no special stature to him. In fact, he was despised 
and rejected and looked down upon, mocked by his people. The Gospel of John put it this way, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? You can almost hear the the ridicule in their voices. He was despised and rejected by his people. Why? Because he was completely different than anything they would have expected from their Messiah. He was lowly. He was a peasant, a servant. He was the exact opposite of the conquering hero they thought was going to throw off Roman rule. That wasn't Jesus. And it's right here, right here, that we begin to see what the true spirit of Christmas is. The true spirit of Christmas is humility. Humility. Write that down in your notes, and if you're not taking notes, that's fine. Remember that, okay? The true spirit of Christmas is humility, selfless humility. For Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, becoming man was the most profoundly humbling thing he could have possibly done. I mean, think about that. God becoming man. The very definition of humility. But Jesus didn't just humble himself and become a man because he thought it might be a fun thing to try out or because he wanted to make a nice little gesture to his creation. No, he became a man because of the fallen, sin-filled creation that had taken place after we screwed it up. He became a man so that he could die for us. Paul writes in verse 8 of Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there we see it very clearly spelled out, don't we? The spirit of Christmas. The purpose of why Jesus was incarnated and born as a man was so that he could humble himself even further, even further than just becoming a man, but so that he could obediently fulfill the plan of redemption for the world by dying for me, dying for you. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake... He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ humbles himself so that we could be made right before God. Because if you're anything like me, then you're pretty messed up. (laughs) All right? I know myself. I know my sin. We all have messed up and fallen short. So Jesus, what did he do? He became a man and lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could save me and so that he could save you. Because guess what? Despite all of our best efforts, we can't save ourselves. And he saved us from eternal separation from God. He saved us from hell. 
so that instead, when we put our faith in him, we could spend eternity in heaven with him. Amen? And so that we could live lives of joy and thanksgiving to the God who saved us, bringing glory and fame to his name. That's how this works. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. But it all starts with humility. The humility of Christ becoming man and then selflessly living a life of perfect obedience to the will of God the Father, even when that meant death on a cross. That's the spirit of Christmas. That is the selfless humility exemplified by Christ, being born so that he could die. We've got to see this. We've got to get this. He was despised and rejected just because he wasn't what people expected. Because he wasn't packaged up like they thought he would be. My friend told me a story that I think illustrates this point pretty well. So like many of us, on Christmas Day, he opens gifts with his family, his immediate family, his wife and his kids. And then afterwards, they go over to his extended family's homes and they open up more gifts. Well, because he had one extra visit to take that evening, he and his wife took separate cars and they made all the stops and then she got home before he did and she took the presents in the house and she put the kids to bed and then because she was exhausted, she went to bed. A little later, my friend got home and he walked in the door and he saw the mess that was left over from Christmas. Bags of um, wrapping paper and garbage bags full of all of the boxes that the kids had torn into to get to their presents, right? And so he thought, well, hey, tomorrow is garbage day. And so I'm just going to take all these garbage bags and, and take them out to the garbage. So he did that and then he went to bed. Well, the next morning, his wife shook him awake, and she said, did you see all of the presents that I brought in from the car last night? All of the presents that were in the big black garbage bag. Well, you can imagine the shock and dread that washed through my friend. You ever, like, get woke up out of your sleep, like, you remember something? And it's like, uh, adrenaline rush. Well, that was exactly, he said, what happened to him. And he ran outside to the garbage to see if the presents were still there. But of course, they weren't. The garbage truck had come and taken them away. See, he never thought to check inside the garbage bags. He saw the outward appearance and assumed it was trash. Just like everything else and he threw it away. And once the gift was gone, he couldn't get it back. And that's exactly what people in Jesus' day did with him. And unfortunately, that is exactly what people in our day do as well. We see the outward appearance of the gospel we see the outward appearance of Jesus Christ, and we hear the simplicity of his message, and we can't accept 
that he is the divine savior of the world and that he is the only way to salvation. Amen? See, the selfless humility of Christ is a stumbling block to the world. And ironically, it's our own pride that keeps us from accepting him. Isn't that amazing? Because I'm so filled of myself and what I think is right, I don't accept the truth of the humble gospel. Of course, it's exactly because of Christ's humility that God the Father exalted him. So as we continue on in this passage, we've now seen the incarnation of the Spirit of Christmas, and now we're going to see the exaltation of the Spirit of Christmas. Picking it up in verse 9, Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is amen worthy. I mean, talk about exaltation. What a gift. What a privilege. Matthew 23 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That was certainly true for Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's true for us as well. The more we understand that humility is the true spirit of Christmas, and the more we live that out, the more God will exalt us. But before you get all excited about that, we need to recognize that the exaltation of God is far different than the exaltation of men. Christ, the exalted one, he was ridiculed and mocked and despised and rejected and beaten and killed. Doesn't sound too appealing, does it? But in the end, it's Jesus Christ who's seated at the right hand of God, reigning over the universe. That is exaltation. 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. At the proper time. Most of us want that time to be right now. Come on, magic genie, let's go with the exaltation here. No, that's not how it works. You will be exalted when you can humble yourself and accept the lordship of Christ in your life. But that exaltation comes at the proper time. When we recognize our sin, when we let go of our pride and call on the Lord to fill us and empower us and lead us and save us, that is when God will exalt us. When we have a hope of eternity, that is exaltation. And thankfully, God doesn't expect us to humble ourselves all by ourselves. Because if that were the case, I'd be in a world of trouble because I would just be so full of myself if I had to do this on my own. 
God will give us the Holy Spirit to empower us, and He gives us the grace. Thank you, Lord, for Your grace. He will give us the grace we need to accomplish His will for our lives. James 4, 6. God opposes who? The proud. He is actively working against the proud, but He gives grace. Thank you, Jesus, for Your grace to the humble. That is what the exaltation of God looks like in our lives. His pouring out more and more grace on us to accomplish His work. The work that He has for us to do while we're still here on earth. Not for our glory, but for His glory. That is exaltation. And then, when our time here on earth is up, He gives us the privilege to spend eternity with Him. I can't wait for that. That is the best exaltation anyone could receive. John puts it this way, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is the gift of exaltation, the greatest gift, a right, the right to become children of God. And it flows from our willingness to humble ourselves before the Lord by putting our faith in Him and constantly going back to Him to give us the grace to humbly serve Him and bring glory to His name. So if you're like me, you're wondering, okay, that's, that's good stuff. Appreciate that. Good stuff. God is, God is awesome. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. How do I do this? How do I, how do I humble myself? I know the Lord's going to help me to do it, but, but I'm working out my own salvation as the Lord is working in me and through me. So, so how, how, how do I do my part? Okay? How do I live out the spirit of Christmas? Well, let's turn back near the beginning of this passage. We're going to look at verse 3 as we look at how we have introspection, introspection on the spirit of Christmas. We need to look inside of ourselves, honestly assess what's going on, and then practically apply what we learn. Paul writes in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here's where we're getting practical. Here's where we're getting introspective. See, it's, it's not enough to know what the spirit of Christmas is. By the grace and power of God, we've got to live out the same humble selflessness that Christ did. And Paul shows us how in these two verses right here. This is the attitude, this is the mind that Paul exhorts us to have among ourselves in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Well, the example is Jesus Christ. The command is verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, what do those mean? What do those words mean? Well, selfish ambition in the Greek originally referred to a day laborer or a mercenary. 
Someone who worked exclusively for their own good, their own well-being. And the word evolved to refer to the attitude of a person who consistently and persistently seeks their own personal advantage, regardless of the effect on others. I'm going to get ahead by cutting you down if I have to. That is selfish ambition. Conceit, on the other hand, refers to a puffed-up view of yourself, an empty and inflated pride or ego that continually seeks to puff itself up even further. That's conceit. So if we put these two things together, we see that selfish ambition pursues selfish goals and advantages that only benefit yourself, while conceit seeks personal glory and acclaim. It's all about me. Paul says we've got to take a look at our hearts. We've got to take a look at our motives and recognize what is driving me to do the things that I do. What pride is in me that motivates me to action? Because that pride, that conceit, that selfish ambition, that is the exact opposite of the selfless humility that Christ calls us to. That is the exact opposite of the true spirit of Christmas. And yet, Christmas time is when we see some of the most conceited and selfish displays by people, isn't it? I mean, bah humbug, right, Mr. Scrooge? (laughs) And he's the worst example of it. Every single one of us has a little bit of a Scrooge in there. That's what we're trying to get at today. Find that Scrooge so we can get him out. Harry Ironside, he told a story. Harry Ironside was a really famous preacher. He told a story of another preacher, a traveling preacher, who would go all around the South, and he'd stay in a town for a couple of months, and then he'd move on to the next place. And this traveling preacher, he was a a very tall and powerful man, and he would go and preach the gospel. And so he was in this town, and it was Christmas time, but it was the south, so it was still really nice and warm outside. So the ladies of the church decided that they were going to have a picnic between the services to feed all of the people and to honor this traveling preacher who was visiting them. Well, because there were so many different people there to hear this guy speak, they were afraid that they were going to run out of food. And so they told all of the teenage boys, because we all know what type of appetite they have, right, that they couldn't make plates for themselves. They gave them small little portions and said, here you go, and if there were any leftovers, then they could have some. Of course, as you can imagine, these teenage boys were pretty upset, and they kind of angrily went off to the side, um, just bad-mouthing everybody, and just kind of waiting and hoping that there might be some food left over. So they started waiting and watching, and interestingly, they started watching the traveling preacher. And they noticed that he kept doing something funny. When no one was looking, he would go over to the food, and he'd take Hanky out of his coat, his big old coat, 
and he would wrap up the food and stuff it in his pockets. And he kept doing this. He kept taking the food, wrapping it up, stuffing it in the pockets. The ladies would bring him more food because he was the honored guest, and so he'd take a couple of bites and thank them, and he'd eat and eat, and then he'd, he'd take some food, and he, it's like he was prepared for this. He had so many different hankies in his coat. It's like he was, he was waiting for this. These boys had just heard this man preach, and now they were watching him eat all of the food that they couldn't eat and steal all of the leftovers that were supposed to be for them. And they were obviously pretty upset by that, right? I mean, the guy was a fraud. He said one thing, he preached one thing, and he did another. We've got to be honest with ourselves here and ask if we do the same thing. Am I Scrooge at times? Do I acknowledge the importance of humility with my lips and with my mind, but my actions prove that I'm really just looking out for number one? And this is what Paul is driving at here in this passage. And he continues on and he says that we've got to ask the Lord to give us the grace to humble ourselves and count others more significant than ourselves. That means that we look at other people as superior to us, as excelling us, as beyond us. Not that they're more valuable or that they're more deserving. I mean, it's not like we're some lowly wretch. We don't look at ourselves that way. We simply look at others as excelling us. Why? Because we recognize that this is exactly what Jesus Christ did with us when he became a man and then died in our place. Why did he do that? Why did he humble himself? Because he considered others more significant than himself. Because of his great love for us, and because of his great love for the Father, he was willing to humble himself. Paul says that we've got to count others more significant than ourselves, not looking out only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now notice here, it doesn't say that you'd never look out for your own interests. Of course you need to take care of yourself. But you don't do that exclusively. You look out for the interests of others as well, before your own interests. Henry Morris put it this way, a modern psychological ploy is to attribute many personal and social problems to individual lack of self-esteem. The scriptures, however, urge each of us to have other esteem, not self-esteem. Our real problem is self-centeredness and too much self-esteem. However, Paul urges us to be lowly-minded, not high-minded, seeking the good of others, not concerned with just ourselves. See, true humility isn't putting ourselves down. True humility is lifting others up. That's 
the spirit of Christmas. And if we concentrate on lifting others up and exalting Christ, then genuine humility will be the inevitable result, and in the end, God will exalt us. I mean, the very first of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how, here's the introspection part, how do we identify the areas of pride in our lives so that the Lord can begin to humble us and teach us to live out the spirit of Christmas? How do we do that? Because pride is so deceiving. We, we, we don't see it. it. It gets in there and it manifests itself and we can't see it. Galatians 6 says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, I got news for you. Every single one of us think that we're something in some area of our life. That's pride and that is deceptive. We need to be introspective. We need to honestly look within. So I'm just going to pose a series of questions to us. And these questions are meant to honestly allow us to look within ourselves and begin to identify areas where we may have pride. Things that may indicate conceit and selfish ambition so that we can ask the Lord to help us to humble ourselves and live out the true spirit of Christmas. Now, I just want you to listen to these questions and try to process them in your mind. I'm gonna throw a bunch out and in fact, every single question is on the back of your bulletin, okay? Because I would really encourage you to take this home and think about it at home when you have some time. So here's the first question. What makes me angriest the quickest? What can happen to me that, boom, just like that, I am super upset? Probably touching on some pride in your life. Where am I quickest to defend myself or explain myself? Do I find myself defending myself all the time? In what area do I think I am the most proficient, the most confident, the most capable, the most expert? You tell me something that you think you're good at? and I will point at a potential area of pride in your life. Or, closely related, in which area am I highly educated? Well, I'm an attorney, and you're going you're gonna to tell me about the law? Okay, let's hear this. I, I, I'm a nurse. Um, you're going to tell me how to take care of myself? Okay. Right? I get like that sometimes. How do I respond to failure or trial? You ever think of failure in terms of pride? I didn't do as well as I wanted to do. I didn't succeed at what I wanted to succeed at. I failed. Oh, there's a lot of I going on in there, isn't there? How about those trials that you're in? 
Lord, why can't you just get me out of this situation? I want it to be done. I want it to be over. I want to be finished with it. I want to move on, and I want to get out of this wilderness. I, 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 I. What do I feel like I'm entitled to? This one was beating me up all week. Because i got to be honest. There are a lot of times when I feel entitled to the obedience of my children. And I don't get it. Or maybe it's not the obedience of my children. Maybe it's the love of my spouse or the respect of my boss, or the respect of my employees, and the direct reports that I have. Well, gosh darn it, they owe that to me, do they? There's only one right that I know of in Scripture, and we already just studied it. It's the right to be called a child of God. There are no other rights. That only goes to those who have put their faith in him. What's important to me? What do I value? You tell me what is important to you, and I can point to potential areas of pride in your life. How well do you take criticism or correction? Are you teachable? Can people speak that into your life? How thankful am I? You show me someone who is filled with thanksgiving, and I will show you someone who is filled with humility. You show me someone who isn't thankful for anything, and I will show you someone who is full of pride. I mean, do you you thank the Lord throughout your day for what he's done for you? Or do we allow that subtle notion creep in that I'm responsible for my success? I'm responsible for this going well. Here's a tough one. How anxious am I? How stressed out do I get about things? I mean, because I'm in control, right? Hmm. Oh, wait, no, I'm really not. And yet, that's how we behave. Pride issue. How critical of others am I? And how easily do I see the good qualities in others? Can I look at you and I can name right off the bat all the things that are wrong with you? Or do I look at you and I see something that's redeeming, has value? How often do I confess my sin Do I have any close friends who actually know my areas of weakness? There's so many other questions, so many other questions. All these questions are meant to begin to help us see potential pockets of pride, and I would really encourage you to go and think about them because they are all obstacles to living out the spirit of Christmas. Because the reality is, the world is watching us. And God is watching us to see 
if we're going to live out what we say we believe? Are we going to live out what Christ lived out by coming to earth and dying in our place, living the life of a lowly servant? We're being watched, just like that traveling preacher was being watched. And the world wants to know if we're going to selfishly and pridefully stuff our pockets this Christmas, or are we going to selflessly and humbly lift others up? You know, the story of the traveling preacher actually doesn't end where I left it off. The boys kept watching that preacher, and he started to distance himself from all the other people. He started making his way over to his bags, where he was ready to move on to the next town. And he walked up to his bags, and he did a funny thing. He walked right on past his bags and made his way over with a group of boys. And he looked at the boys and he said, boys, I saw what those ladies did to you and you need this food a lot more than I do. And he emptied everything out to the boys and they feasted. And you know what? While he was there in that town ministering to those people, he led every single one of those boys to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he lived out what he preached. He lived out what he said he believed. He lived out the spirit of Christmas and that selfless humility that Christ modeled for us and calls us to do. First John says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This Christmas season, let's hold on to the true spirit of Christmas and walk in the same manner in which our Savior walked. Christ humbled himself so that we could turn aside from our pride and our conceit and our selfish ambition and humbly trust in him. That's the spirit of Christmas, and that's what Jesus is calling us to. Let's humble ourselves and trust and the love and power of Christ and ask for God's grace so that we can lift up those who can't lift themselves. Amen? Amen.